The following podcast is brought to you by Out the House Productions. Welcome to We Make Florida. I'm your host, Dr. B.J. Brunius, and thanks for coming back for another week of turmoil in the state of Florida. Oh, my God, y'all, this has been a weekend. These folks are doing the most, y'all. These elected officials have gone ham crazy. Let's just talk about it. Let's get right into it. So in Orlando over the weekend, we have Nazis just openly on the streets of Orlando giving the Hail Hitler sign, holding anti-Semitic signs right in broad daylight on our shores in our state. And we've got Nazis walking in the same city as Disney World. If this isn't the time for a multi-faith, multi-generational, multi-class, and multi-racial coalition to come together as one, in unity to fight this battle of anti-Semitism, of racism, of bigotry, of classism against the powerful elite. I don't know what is. I mean, I truly think of this as our in-game moment. For those of you who watch Marvel, this is our in-game moment. This is where the Avengers, this is where Wakanda forever needs to take its place because Not only do we have Nazis openly marching on the streets of Florida, but we've got politicians who do not even see it in their interest, in their political interest, to call out anti-Semitism for fear that they will lose their political careers. This used to be something that we could all agree on, and now we've got the press secretary for the governor of Florida making excuses in questioning whether or not these were even real Nazis, as if if they were fake Nazis, that would make it better. And then homegirl had the nerve to delete her tweet like if she don't know as a communications specialist that everything on the internet lasts forever. It's like, come on, girl. No, just because you deleted your tweet don't mean you didn't tweet it, boo. We all saw you. We saw what you did. We saw you flirting with that anti-Semitism. We saw you dive straight in to full-on Nazism. If we don't make it our duty to hold these elected officials accountable for the behavior that they are displaying in our name with our tax dollars paying their salaries, we're in trouble. And that's why we do this podcast. So coming up, we actually have someone who wants to do just that. Peggy Schiller, she is running for the U.S. House of Representatives to represent the first congressional district in the great sunshine state of Florida. In our conversation, we get into her platform, the circumstances surrounding her entry into politics, and why people who know her say that she was born for public service candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives representing the 1st District of Florida, Peggy Schiller. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, BJ. Thank you so much for having me. 
So it's been such a pleasure to interview the slew of candidates um, that are running for various offices throughout the panhandle and how great it is that women are actually responding to the call of public service in such a in such a huge way, particularly in the panhandle. When I was at Leadership Blue last month in Orlando, um, I didn't get to meet you personally, but I, I spoke to several people who knew you. And one of the things, one of the things that I remember, a quote, and I can't remember her name who told me this, but she told me that you you were born for a life of service. And that stuck with me. So when I had the opportunity to interview you, I really wanted to ask you about that. How, how have you led uh, your life and your career to have people be the ambassadors around Orlando saying that you were born for a life of service? Um, I guess I, I would say because um, not necessarily born, but I was taught by my parents that our purpose on earth is not to serve ourselves, but to serve others. Um, it's a family tradition. In fact, my grandfather was a politician in Austria between World War One and World War Two, and and most of what he did was serving other people. The first thing my father did the day he turned 18 was join the army. I saw my father be part of every town committee you could be in. I watched my mother, although she was highly educated and had a master's, she devoted most of her life to volunteering and volunteering for issues that made that made an impact to her. So after I graduated from law school, I um, practiced corporate law in New York City for a couple of years, but I soon found it gave me no pleasure and I didn't like it. And I then opened up a small business and I was really able to put all my legal training toward serving the underserved, so helping right the right wrongs. I guess that's what they mean by I was born to serve. You know, I we bought our house here in um, 2013, and at the first uh, meeting of the Walton County Committee, I volunteered to run um, voter protection because it's what I've been doing in both for the Democratic Party and for with Stacey Abrams' group Fair Fight, fighting for the 2018 gubernatorial house. I, I imagine that's what they're talking about. And I've had conversations with both Democrats, Republicans, and independent female candidates who sort of share a similar experience in in being told that running for office, they, that they shouldn't do it or being discouraged from doing that. You mentioned your uh, your legal career, going to law school. I, w- I would presume that, you know, as a female law student, you probably were not in the majority. It was probably ma- dominated by males. Have you had that experience in this run? of the detractors and the naysayers and the people who say that it's not possible? Not in regard to my sex. I really haven't. I only received a lot of positive and being willing to run in what we all know is a mostly red district. But nobody's in this particular instance has has used my sex against me. I can't say it's never happened in my life because it absolutely has. Although I've been around politics my whole life with my father and my grandfather's history and you know, working and doing a lot of legal work with um, voter protection, I never occurred to me to run until we were here and I was so aghast at what was going on in our district and what was passing for congressional representation here. So I don't know whether somewhere in the back of my mind I didn't run earlier because of, of some kind of sexism, 
I don't think I ever really, truly experienced sexism in that way. And I've gotten nothing from 90% of the people, 99% of the people accept positive feedback for deciding to run. So let's talk about the, the transition that you made from public advocacy into the realm of politics. I, mm-hmm. I, I want to explore how did you make that shift? What was it that said, you know what, that we need better representation and I just may be the person to do that? Well, I think it was a couple of things. Um, first of all, when we did own a house in Atlanta from 2013 to 2018, we were in John Lewis's congressional district. I've always been an advocate for things. So I've always had my local um, representatives and senators and governors, et cetera, on speed dial on my phone so I can call and discuss whatever issue it is that I'm concerned about. With John Lewis, if you called, you always got a person, always. And you were listened to respectfully. Now, for me, and most of the time, I was just saying thank you for some action he had taken, but there were occasions where I didn't agree with him. Even with Senator Perdue of Georgia, when you called his office, you did reach somebody. You could talk to somebody and at least feel there was somebody to talk to. So that if I'd had some kind of emergent need, if I had a child abroad in trouble or I needed some other type of citizen's help from my representatives, I knew there were people I could call on who would answer and talk to me. And the first thing that happened here was we tried to reach Matt Gates phone, you get a voicemail, you are told to email his office, nobody in specific. Um, There seemed to be no way to get him to function as our representative. I then found out that was true of Senator Rubio as well, but that's another story for another day. I was just really aghast at this total lack of representation. And then as we have lived here and owned property here for 10 years, we've seen Matt Gates do less than nothing over Hurricane Sally leaving people stranded in um, Pensacola and on the beaches. He didn't even show up to pass out paper towels as someone else did in Puerto Rico. Um, He simply seems to be in Congress to forward his own personal agenda, to make himself famous, and to have a good time roaming around the country and challenging people. And that's not why somebody should be in office. And that's what turned the tide for me, is I, I really think this district needs to be represented by somebody. I think you hit on something that I'm actually consistently hearing, even from Republicans and independents, mm-hmm. in that Matt Gates is sort of using the office for his own personal profile hype. And, and that's a universal uh, critique that I've heard of him. Ha- have you noticed any other voids that your candidacy could fill if voters give you a chance to represent them in the first congressional district of Florida? Well, I think if they chose to have me represent them, what they'd have is somebody who believes deeply. The job of a congressional representative is to represent the people in their district first, their state second, their nation third, and only after that to represent their party. I make no bones about it. I am a Democrat. It would be ridiculous for me to say I was anything but. However, If elected, I believe in compromise. I believe that what I need to do is listen to the people of this district, find out what their needs and desires are, how to get their lives better, how to get them what they need and and for the reasons they need. And I am more than willing to work with anybody to achieve that goal. So 
I really am trying to not make this election about party. I think this election needs to be about personal um, capability and personal character. And I think I'm the best for that role. As you go into saying that your first priority is to represent the people of the district first, Mm -hmm. when you're looking at some of the priorities of the voters in this area. I've looked at some panhandle polling about Mm -hmm. what voters care about. And ironically, Democrats, Republicans, and independents care about the same things. I know, go figure. (laughs) Yeah, so it's like healthcare and jobs and education and the economy. So I I was just wondering if you have found in in your conversations with voters what are what are the shared values that you that you're noticing or recognizing that basically we all want the same things. You just summed it up in a nutshell. People have different ideas about how to get it. You know, one of the main things that everybody in the first district, everybody on the panhandle cares about, are the beaches. They see how absolutely fundamental the beaches are to our economy they boost the tourist economy, they boost the aquaculture, etc. And everybody is here because they love the beaches and they want to have the proper use of the beaches. And when you talk to people, there's not a lot of difference, except for the very narrow, narrow band of people who want to make the beaches private for those homeowners who live right on the beach. People are aware of the fact that we're, um, we're failing our middle class and lower class people because they're being kicked out of housing. We don't have affordable housing. Most people want to be able to live somewhere safely and have decent housing, healthy housing, and they want to be able to afford it without having to choose between their house and paying the utilities or anything else. And we're losing that at a rapid rate. Florida itself is becoming one of the highest and most costly places to live in the country. And here in the Panhandle, we're losing affordable housing every day. Both the beaches and the affordable housing would not seem to be connected, but they are because it all comes down to uncontrolled development. I'm for development. I mean, a a community has to grow to to become a, a, to stay a vital community. But good economic policy is good environmental policy here because the two go marching hand in hand. So that if we were to say, control development a little bit, to insist on policies that, promote affordable housing with any development, all of that helps the people here. And those are things that are wanted no matter what political party people may join or not. Um, Everybody here is well aware that we have in our district the dubious um, fame of having the most children incarcerated in adult facilities. Now, when you hear that, there's no other conclusion to drive but the fact that we are somehow failing our children. Um, If we put more children in adult detention centers than any other place in the state, we're failing them somehow. And when you start seeing that, then you have to look at education. And I know that people are up in arms now and they're they're arguing about things that are very important to me, free speech, freedom, et cetera. But we're getting into the nitty gritty about things like, do we pull books from the shelves? If so, what books do we pull from the shelves? Do we maintain a teacher's right to teach history as it happened. Um, But all of those things really aren't as important. They're they're sort of dog whistles, if you will, as just putting our time and money and personal effort 
into making sure, sure our kids are ready for the 21st and 22nd centuries, which means making sure they have access to all digital equipment that they need, that the schools have all the equipment they need, that kids don't go home with homework assignments they can't do because they simply don't have access to a laptop or the type of um, Wi-Fi or whatever that they might need. So I think when you get away from all these dog whistles that both parties are doing, and I'm not, and I think both parties are equally guilty about this, we see right below that the truth. Everybody wants a future and an opportunity for our children. As you so clearly outlined that, you know, we all want the same things. We may just have different ways of getting there. What are you finding as the the modes of division? Because there there seems to be an apparatus out there that purposely wants to wants to divide us in order for the, the people in power to sort of walk walk away with the spoils of our labor, basically. And so have you been able to identify what is dividing us in this current climate, in this current political climate, particularly as it relates to the panhandle, not necessarily on a national level, but in the panhandle itself? What do you think are the, are the modes of division that are being implemented against us as the citizens? Well, I think there is a lot of, even here that I've seen, there's a lot of um, misrepresentation of facts. There is a lot of as I used the term before, dog whistles, to try and get people to stay completely within their party framework. You're a Republican, therefore you must vote Republican. You're a Democrat, therefore you're against the Republicans and must vote for Democrats. And um, there's been so much political rhetoric locally and nationally that people are, are just digging into their side of the argument and not seeing it. We all lose when that happens. We all need to stop digging in and listen to the other people and say, okay, I don't really need to hear that you vote Republican and therefore you're going to vote for Matt Gates. I want to hear what do you need from Matt Gates if he gets elected and what can I give you if I get elected and has Matt Gates given that to you? Because it's more a matter of not the fact that he's a Republican, but who, what his own personal character is. I don't know enough to say I accuse so-and-so and so-and-so of misinformation. But, you know, I, I do feel that they're coming from the top down has been, unfortunately, for the past five years, a lot of attempt to explain things like the Constitution incorrectly, to rely on catchphrases and make promises that aren't kept and create problems that really aren't of very much importance while ignoring those that are of a much bigger importance. In my in my research leading up to this interview, you actually taught me something. I was reading a quote about the lack of, of VA uh, health care services and lack of VA right. hospital and that our district, the first congressional district of Florida, actually has a significantly large number of active duty military veterans and veterans families and considering the the, the percentage of people of people who come from the from the military space who reside in this district it was shocking to me the lack of va services in this area and so it, i was wondering if you could expound on that well it, it it really was to me when i started studying what was going on with veterans issues the first thing i came across was that some veterans had been um protesting outside a va clinic in july and I just, you know, it was one of those things that catches your eye and you read the article. And then it turned out 
they were protesting because this was the clinic where they were supposed to have their continuing medical care, where you like to think that you have the doctor who knows you, who's your primary care physician, who knows the little quirks about your health care or your and your family, et cetera. And in that particular clinic, they had, had they have such frequent turnover of doctors, nobody can have a primary care physician. Nobody has any continuum of care because every time they go, they see a new um, provider. So I started looking again, and then I found that we don't have an inpatient VA hospital in this district. People have to drive as far as Mobile. And particularly in a time of pandemic, that is absolutely not feasible. If you need to get to the emergency, we have a bad enough time getting people into the emergency rooms right now. We don't need to add to it by simply not providing the emergency rooms. And so the vets are obviously, like everybody else, crowding up our, our uh, emergency rooms when they shouldn't have to. They have devoted a significant portion of their life to serving our country. The least we can do is provide them with a hospital that has professionals who understand what it is to be a vet, to understand the, the different nuances of treating vets and how those nuances may come into play in treating whatever their issue is now, and yet we don't have an inpatient facility. We have these clinics that are around and so they can get medical care of a sort, but it's mostly like going to urgent care. Um, I've just been through myself, my doctor of 10 years, has retired and another specialist who I've been seeing for about five years has retired and it's really shocking. It's hard because what am I gonna do without Dr. Shumate? She knows who I am and she knows what I need. And with her, things like teledoc or uh, teleconferencing work because she knows who she's talking to. The fact that the vets have had no access to any kind of thing like that is, is shameful. And then you start looking at how are there other services provided and again, we see a woefully low success rate in providing vets the various services that they need. And um, I, I can't believe that's been allowed to go on in an area that is so, as you said, has such a high percentage of people that are in one way or another, either active duty or um, as a veteran or as a family of active duty or veterans attached to our um, armed services. And as we go through, periods of stress like we are right now. We don't know what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine. We rely on our servicemen and women even more. And we need to treat them in a manner that, that, that honors what they are doing for us. And, and as we get into the intersections of housing as well as the military, you know, our, um, one of the county commissioners in Santa Rosa County released a resolution basically admitting to the, the, the voters in Santa Rosa County that the average rent in order, in order to live in a, in a decent, safe, and healthy home, it costs about $2,200 a month. And he wrote this resolution asking that more funding be put towards military families because I guess the current allotted amount of money was about $1,700. Yep. And he figured that it cost about twenty two hundred. So military families were having a five hundred dollar budget shortfall every, month. shortfall every single month. And you mentioned affordable housing as being an important part of your platform. It, it obviously intersects with military issues. And so, is that a, is that an issue that you think we may be able to find some bipartisan movement on, particularly because this resolution came out of an all Republican county commission? 
I, I would hope it is. I think it very well may be. I mean, um, I think we need to encourage our local governments to act in favor of their constituents. And that's, I mean, about putting their constituents first. And certainly if um, Santa Rosa County can, can pass that stance and can enforce it so that, you know, so that we can give military families the money when needed. And um, that's a wonderful thing. And I don't care who put it forward, whether a Republican or a Democrat or anybody put it forward. Um, I, I think it's more important is that that kind of thing is happening. I would hope we can also do it on the national level is, is for once and for all recognize what our veterans have done, what they are doing and make these type of um, services and benefits available. And I think that I, you know, that's one of the major things that I would find that I needed to advocate for in the Congress is for our district to get a, to get a greater percentage of the services available to veterans because we have a greater percentage of veterans here. And I, and I like a quote that I read about you uh, explaining how good environmental policy is really good business policy. Um, and I, I love how you make that connection because I have spoken to elected officials about the landfills in Escambia County that are basically destroying the property values of the communities around them. Um, right. I have spoken to community and, and environmental uh, associations in Santa Rosa County who are who are basically critiquing that the that, that the developers are being given so many contracts to just build and build and build that one neighborhood had their sewer line hooked to their water line on accident. Um, I'm sure Okaloosa County has similar issues. Walton County has beach-related issues. Well, for that fact, all the entire panhandle has beach-related issues. And so can you talk about and explain to the listeners why is it important that we protect the environment, particularly for a state like ours that relies so heavily on the, the beautiful land for our economy. Well, it's because everything in life is a circle. I think if you, if you want to think about it that way, if you ask people what the major economy is in the panhandle in the first district, most people in the country would say it must be tourism. Now there's some argument that, you know, the, the, the armed services are another large part of our economy, et cetera, but there is no doubt that our land is a huge, and particularly for our coastal communities, which is what the panhandle in the first district is made up of, rely on those beaches for so very much. Then we look at businesses that have had unfettered development lately, unfettered building all over. But when you build, say, a very expensive housing development or a very expensive apartment, the one thing you do is you, you put in cement walls and you put in cement pilings in order to build and that diverts the water and so water can't flow to where it's supposed to be it flows to these outer pools that are supposed to take up the water and when we have a large rain event it need not be as large as sally but let's take for instance sally it leads to huge flooding in the past without those developments there the ground was more capable of taking in the water so we didn't have the flooding and we didn't lose the crops and the animals and all the businesses that we did lose during Hurricane Sally. When we have unfettered development on 
the beaches, which we are again having, you have the same type of problem. It is an accepted fact that in the next 15 to 20 years, our beaches are going to, our water level is going to rise. Some people say it'll be two feet. Other people have predicted as high as 10 feet. But at either end, those houses that are now being built and there's no outlet for the water to go, except into the houses, they will be in the ocean and we will have lost the beaches. And if people don't have a beach to go to, they don't come here. That's why they come. Um, if we don't give access to the beaches, which is what's happening in Walton County, where we're saying the beaches are essentially owned by whosoever house fronts the ocean, there's no reason for people in the thousands of other properties that are that line 30A um, to, to, to own them any longer because they won't get renters. The renters come because they want access to the beaches. And now they'll only have that access in certain communities that do have, that already own the beaches, quote unquote. So we need to get back to what Florida has always been known for is its gorgeous beaches that are protected by the local um, communities and by the state and are open for everybody. But when you close them down, you start affecting things like aquaculture. Our fishing, fishery habitats are being polluted. We see, you know, the red tide is coming up the Gulf. It's more than likely going to land here. Everything affects our economy, our fishing economy, our agricultural economy. Um, and then you have things, as you pointed out, like the borrow pits in Escambia County and Wedgwood, et cetera. Those are just the selfish efforts of people to get rid of their waste and not have to pay much for it and for the, and for the landowners to try and hide what they've allowed to happen on their land that is more than likely their, their studies being done but they haven't been finished leaching into the groundwater and into the people's water, et cetera, um, making those neighborhoods virtually unlivable. Um, and you know, if you look at their cancer rates, et cetera, around Wedgwood, um, it's, it's atrociously high. Um, good business is to keep towns healthy, is to keep places safe and healthy for people to live in is for the keep people that are trying to grow their businesses and make their lives here a, a, a place they want to stay. Um, and the types of things that are happening, and, and as you pointed, the unfettered um, type of development that's happening too fast and too often and on too grand a scale, we are losing the ability to control our water and our land, and we lose everything. As you're, as you're thinking about putting together a multi-class, multicultural, uh, diverse coalition mm -hmm. to embark on this journey of, of becoming the next representative for, uh, for, the, for U.S. Congress in Florida, mm -hmm. what does that ground game look like for you? You mean it, for the actual campaign? Yeah, for the campaign. Asking? Yeah. Um, well, what we're trying to do is this is a grassroots campaign. There's no doubt about it. So we are talking to everybody we can and going to every place we can. And we, I am doing my best to include people's voices and to encourage people to not only tell me what they want, but to volunteer for the campaign to make sure their voices are heard and are part of the campaign. Um, and I guess that 
the ground game is just going out and meeting as many people in various communities as possible to talk with them, to, but more than to tell them about me is to listen to them and to find out what they really need and move on from there. So if someone wants to volunteer for your campaign, how can they reach out to you? I'm really reachable. Everything on social media is Peggy for the Panhandle because that's really what I'm trying to be. So PeggyForThePanhandle.com is our website. Peggy for the Panhandle is our Facebook page and our Instagram page. The only thing that's different is Twitter, which they won't let me have that long a, a handle. So it's PL4FL1. So Peggy for the Panhandle or Peggy for Florida one. Um, my email is Peggy at PeggyForThePanhandle.com. Um, as long as you remember Peggy for the Panhandle and you Google it, you will get to us. We love volunteers. I need to get more petitions signed and I hate to bring it up, but we always need more money. Um, we are not going after any PAC money. We are not going after major corporate money. We want to be representing the people and that's what we're doing. And so far, we're, I think we're doing it fairly successfully. We're making ourselves known. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. For all those listeners, reach out to her on all the socials. If you can spare a couple of dollars, $5, $10 to her campaign, please don't hesitate to do that because we certainly want a grassroots funded campaigner out there for the people of Florida. So I appreciate you coming to the podcast. Thank you, BJ. And if you want to talk to us, you want to get in contact with us, send us an email, vote at WeMakeFlorida.com. That's vote at WeMakeFlorida.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Hey, maybe if you disagree with us, let us know. Send us an email. We may even invite you on the podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to cover, we'll be glad to take your suggestions because this podcast is really for you all. Also, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. We're located at WeMakeFL at WeMakeFL. You can also check out our blog at WeMakeFlorida.com. That's WeMakeFlorida.com, where you can see the latest blog post on what's going on, particularly as it relates to politics, healthcare, COVID, economy, jobs, wages. It's all there. Check out the website, WeMakeFlorida.com. Now, in order to continue the momentum of this podcast, you've got to subscribe and leave a five-star review. So please take the moment to subscribe to our podcast, follow us, as well as give us a five-star review if you like the things that we have to say on the podcast. Finally, we would certainly love to turn the podcast into a live stream. In order to do that, we're going to need some help. So if you want to become a paid subscriber, you can find the link in the description to the podcast and click there and be one of our subscribers. One of the benefits of being a paid subscriber is that you will actually get the podcast a day before everybody else does. So if that interests you, and if you want to see us go into live stream media, leave a little tip, however much you can spare, $1, $5, $10, however much you can spare, it will certainly help us continue this work. We appreciate it. Until next time, bye-bye for now.